Hi guys, this is Robin Schumacher. I was asked to teach a man challenge session on the new series that you're studying, Upside Down. Uh, the section I was given was Matthew 5 uh, verses 17 through 20. And when I presented this first at Southeast, unfortunately there was an issue with the recording for about the first 10 or so minutes of the lesson. So I was asked to re-record that portion for you, uh, which is this. And by putting this together with the recording that uh, the team does have at Southeast, you'll be able to get the entire lesson. So um, the, the session itself continues on with what you've been studying in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is uh, the longest discourse that was uh, recorded by the Gospel writers uh, from Jesus' lips. Uh, definitely the most famous and while you can absolutely just read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on your own and, and get plenty from the passage, you'll be able to get a lot more if you understand a little bit about the Old Testament. Now, when I, when I say Old Testament, I'll bet that there are some of you who are thinking, ugh, uh, you know, the Old Testament's boring. Uh, aren't we, you know, in the church today? It's a New Testament thing. We're under the New Covenant. And you're absolutely right. Uh, and to tell you the truth, when I uh, first went to seminary to, uh, to get um, some education on uh, theology and etc., uh, when I looked at the curriculum, I saw that there were a number of Old Testament classes that I had to take, and I was not excited about taking them whatsoever. But here's the thing, guys. When all was said and done, the Old Testament classes that I took were absolutely the best classes that I was given during my time at, at seminary. They were simply just eye-opening, mind-blowing. I learned so much in those classes that I, that I just didn't know. And I'm going to give you a little bit of that this morning, hopefully. In fact, I was so impressed by what I had learned that once I finished my education, I told my wife, I said, I think, I, I think I'd like to go back and get a, uh, another degree in Old Testament. And my wife had uh, suffered through uh, the years of school where I was working. My normal job, I'd been a database engineer for a lot of years and an executive in software companies. And I was doing that at the same time I was going to school. And so uh, a lot of my time was taken away from that. And when I told her that I wanted to go back and get yet another degree, she kind of gave me that look that wives give husbands when they come to them and ask for a motorcycle. So um, needless to say, I don't have an Old Testament degree, but I do have enough knowledge uh, to lead you through the passage that I was given to teach on this morning. And here's the thing, when, when you look at the Old Testament, you see a, a really nice contrast between what happened back then and what is taking place in the passage that we're studying today. So in the Old Testament, you have the generations of Adam, okay, God's first created man, and you see all these lineages and what have you in the Old Testament. The New Testament starts out with the generations of Jesus and shows his lineage through Abraham and David. Pretty powerful stuff. In the Old Testament, we see that Adam sins, and we'll cover that a little bit more in the garden, and he leaves us with a curse. We all inherit a sin nature, which we don't want, but it's, it's there, so he leaves us with a curse. The New Testament, on the other hand, we find that Jesus is sinless. He did not commit any sin, and he leaves us with a blessing, which uh, you've already studied in some of the passages uh, in, in weeks that uh, have led up to this point. The Old Testament ends with a curse. Uh, book of Malachi, uh, some people pronounce Malachi, uh, the last verse, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That, that's pretty cheery. 
Uh, the New Testament, on the other hand, starts with the Beatitudes, the blessings that you've already studied. And in fact, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, ends with a blessing. There shall no longer be any curse. The Old Testament, uh, one of its pictures is Mount Sinai, where you have the thunder and the, the mountain trembling and the lightning and Moses going up to get the Ten Commandments and there's a judgment and all of that. Contrast that with what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount. Grassy plains, very peaceful. Uh, it's pictured by Mount Zion. We have grace and, and something that's, that's far different than, than what we saw in the Old Testament. The Old Testament demonstrates our need for salvation over and over again. It shows us our flaws, shows us our weaknesses. And in the New Testament, we're introduced to our Savior, Jesus, who provides that type of salvation. So when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, you've gone through already verses 2 through 16 in Matthew chapter 5. It talks about your citizenship in the kingdom. talks about how you behave. You're going to be salt and light to the uh, the the world. Now, in the passage that we have today, it's what in, in Scripture is called a set of hinge verses. So much like a door turns on a hinge, these verses that we're going to study today turn us from one topic to another, directs us from what Jesus has been saying in the Beatitudes and the Blessings, and then he's going to be jumping into a clarification of what the Old Testament really taught and what it really means. But to get there, we have to go through these sets of verses first, and where he's going to be setting forth the, the standard for righteousness that the kingdom of God requires. And so what we find is really that the gospel is uh, not so much radically different from what the Old Testament says, but it's radically different from what the people back then thought the Old Testament said. What Jesus is going to give us is an astounding clarification of what Moses and all of the other uh, writers of the Old Testament had, uh, had put down under the inspiration of God. So let's go ahead and read through the passage uh, that we have today. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. starts off, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, two points that we're going to be covering in this lesson. Number one, the eternal guide to heaven. And number two, the eternal requirement of heaven. Let's now jump back up to verse 17 and start. So Jesus begins, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why would he start like this? Why does he begin this way? Well, even early in, in Jesus' ministry, people were beginning to see him as kind of a revolutionary. And that set off a lot of red flags for the scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. They were asking, who's this guy? He doesn't seem to keep the Sabbath. He doesn't wash his hands in the traditional manner that we believe he should before he eats, and all of this type of stuff. Fact of the matter was, though, that Jesus lived his life entirely under the Old Testament law in the way it was intended to be lived, not under the way the religious leaders uh, prescribed. Because what we find is they added a lot of man-made religion to God's laws that we find in the Old Testament made them extraordinarily burdensome. And so in a very real way, it wasn't Jesus who was doing away with the Old Testament law. Um, the religious leaders were the ones who were setting aside the Old Testament and, and hanging a curtain, if you will, over their eyes so they couldn't see what God said. 
So he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. So that leads us to a simple question. Fulfill what? Well, he told us the law and the prophets, but what does that really mean? Well, I'd like you to consider that he is talking about three particular things. First, he's talking about all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to him. So we'll cover this in, in more detail in just a few moments. But there are a lot of prophecies that spoke about the coming Messiah, who he would be, where he would come from, what he would do, things like that. And so Jesus is going to live those out uh, throughout his ministry. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is speaking to an audience and he says, For those who lived in Jerusalem by their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, they didn't get what the Old Testament said, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. That's a really important point. The people who condemned Jesus to death, crucified him, they had no idea they were carrying out God's plan. But through their own free will, um, they did exactly what God was prescribing. So Paul continues, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, and is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So God fulfilled uh, the resurrection that he spoke about where Jesus is concerned. So the very first thing that Jesus came to fulfill was all, were all the prophetic statements that were made about him. So that's number one. Number two has to do with the moral law. And here we're talking about things like the Ten Commandments, right? Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. The sad fact is that since Adam was created, there's not been a single human being, and still isn't, uh, in terms of, of just uh, humans in general, that have been able to live God's moral law perfectly throughout their entire life. Instead, it took the God-man to come from heaven to do just that. Jesus is the only one that has perfectly kept the moral law. And in that way, he fulfilled what the Old Testament says. And here's the fantastic thing. His righteousness that was achieved by living out that moral law becomes our own. When we put our faith and trust in Him, God imputes that, gives us, gives us His righteousness so that it becomes ours. And we are what the Bible calls justified before God. We are declared righteous while still in our sinning state. The ceremonial law, the ceremonial system. So when you read the first five books of the Bible that are called the Pentateuch, you see God constantly reminding us sin means death, sin means death, sin means death. Adam and Eve sin. What does God do? He kills animals and puts skin on them to cover them. A, a, a symbolic representation of covering our sin. So in the very beginning, sin meant death. Animals were killed. And you see this sacrificial system introduced all throughout the Old Testament. You sinned. You deserve to die. But instead, I'm allowing you to use this animal as a substitute for you. It will pay the price for your sins instead of you. You will not die. It will. Problem, though. Writer of Hebrews calls it out. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was never meant to be something that ended uh, the, the penalty and the judicial part of God's law with, that, that, that represents dealing with sin. Never put in place to be something permanent. Instead, we have Jesus who comes along. He becomes the perfect spotless Lamb of God who, when sacrificed on the cross, appeases God's wrath 
and again, allows us to be able to enter the kingdom of God. We deserve to die. We don't deserve the kingdom of God. Instead, we deserve eternal punishment, but he takes all of that on himself as the perfect sacrifice of God. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He, having offered one sacrifice for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He sits down at the right hand of God. It's finished. That's also the place of honor uh, with God. Okay? So that's the third thing that Jesus came to fulfill, the ceremonial law. So you've got the prophecies of Jesus, you've got the moral law of God, and you've got the ceremonial system that ends with his sacrifice on the cross. Right? He fulfills what others can't. So if we begin to, to, again, look back and forward in terms of of the Old Testament and the New, King Adam comes on the scene. Now, I'm giving him the name, King Adam. You probably never thought of Adam as a king. First chapter of Genesis, God tells Adam, earth is your domain. Subdue it. What happens? A couple chapters later, he and his wife fall to Satan and sin. And guess what happens then? His domain is given over to Satan. Satan then assumes control of the earth, in a sense. That's why he's called the God of this world. That's why when he was tempting Jesus, he said, I'm going to give you all of the kingdoms of the world if you just fall down and worship me, because it's been given over to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. How'd he get that? Through what happened in the garden. King Adam abdicates his throne. Satan usurps his throne and gets what Adam had. New Testament, King Jesus, our king, comes along. He's not in a lush garden. He's in a rough wilderness hadn't eaten for 40 days, Satan comes along, and Jesus drop kicks him across the parking lot. He does what Adam can't. He fulfills what Adam can't. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they're brutally oppressed in Egypt. God miraculously pulls them out. Israel's called God's son in the Old Testament. God's son comes out of Egypt. Doesn't take long, though, for them to begin to disobey God, begin to grumble at God. And they're unable to be able to tackle what God is asking of them. Jesus, on the other hand, as a baby, was taken to Egypt, right? Because Herod was wanting to kill the babies. Mom and dad took him to Egypt. He comes back out of Egypt. And he succeeds in the wilderness where Israel failed in the wilderness. So, again, Jesus fulfills what others can't. Now, those you may understand and maybe you've seen a little bit about in your reading of scripture what about this guy though jonah probably know the story right jonah's one of the minor prophets god tells jonah look i got the city nineveh you need to go tell them they need to repent and if they don't repent i'm going to level the city jonah says i don't think so he gets on a ship and goes in the absolute opposite direction of nineveh like you can run from God. What you may not know about Jonah is there are incredible parallels between his story and, again, what Jesus is able to accomplish. So God calls on Jonah to carry out a task for him. Jonah disobeys. He disobeys God's will. The Father asks Jesus, come to earth to be the Savior of mankind. Jesus obeys and does what his Father is asking. When Jonah's trying to escape from God, he's asleep on a cushion in this ship that comes under attack from God with a great storm, and he's asleep on the cushion. In the New Testament, Jesus, a number of times, is asleep on cushions as storms are surrounding the disciples. In the Old Testament, Jonah's caught in a storm of God's wrath because of his disobedience. In the New Testament, 
Jesus, in a sense, is caught in a storm of God's wrath because of our disobedience. Jonah is taken by the men in the ship and thrown overboard. So Jonah is thrown overboard by the men to save themselves, to pacify and satisfy God's wrath. And when he's thrown overboard, guess what? The storm stops. God's wrath is appeased. Jesus in the New Testament, in a sense, is taken by evil men and thrown overboard in a sense. And when we put our faith and trust in him, the storm of God's wrath ceases where we're concerned. Jonah goes down into a watery grave. Jesus goes down into an earthly grave. Jonah is miraculously, via a fish, preserved for three days and three nights. Jesus in the New Testament is miraculously preserved by God for three days and three nights in the grave. Jonah, in a sense, comes back to life. The fish yaks Jonah up on a beach to get going to Nineveh. So in a sense, he comes back from the dead. Jesus is resurrected and comes back from the dead. Jonah goes to a Gentile nation and preaches repentance. Jesus takes his disciples and tells them to go into all nations and preach repentance, including the Gentile nations. Again, Jesus fulfills what others really can't. And guys, this is why, this is why I found classes I took in the Old Testament to be so incredible and so satisfying and so exciting because it's all about him. It's a story all about Jesus and what he has come to do for us. That's why the Old Testament is really so exciting when you begin to see these things um, and they come alive to you in the text. Now, one last thing I want to talk about with respect to prophecy. So I told you that one of the things Jesus came to do, fulfill Old Testament prophecies about himself. And guys, this is one of the reasons, you got your Bible with you today or uh, wherever, you can trust what God's word says. It's one of the validations, one of the proving points that scripture is true and correct. Because here's the thing, you've got 300, a little bit more, prophecies about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, some of them are duplicates. When you boil them down to distinct prophecies, there are a little over 100, okay? And all of them get fulfilled in the life of one guy. Thousands of years, all these prophecies, one guy. What are the odds that could happen? Well, we really don't have to ask. <clears throat> There's this math guy, Stoner. He did a little bit of the math and found that just to fulfill eight of the prophecies of the Old Testament coming true in one guy, one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, statisticians will tell you that once you go past one in 10 to the 50th power, it's no chance at all. It's impossible. And that is reached when you just apply 23 or 25 prophecies to Jesus, and he fulfilled four times that. Guys, the only way this could happen is if the Bible that you're holding is a supernatural book. And the one who knows the future is inspiring his writers to put this down. This is why the Old Testament prophecies, again, are a validation or a proving point of the truth of Scripture. And this is why people like Blaise Pascal, he was a French uh, uh, physicist, mathematician, and theologian. He said this, I see many contradictory religions, and consequently all are false, save one. Each one wants to be believed on its own authority and threatens unbelievers. Every religion on the planet you believe me because of what I say, and if you don't, you're in trouble. I do not therefore believe them. Everyone can say this. Everyone can call himself a prophet. We got people that do that today, right? But I see that Christian religion where prophecies are fulfilled, and that is what everyone cannot do. 
he is spot on right. Okay, so that's verse 17. You guys bring some breakfast with you this morning? No, we'll finish on time, I promise. Verse 17. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, I wanted to point this out real quickly. When you see the words truly, oftentimes you'll see them repeated. Truly, truly, it's the word amen. It me, it's, it's emphasis. What I'm about to tell you is very serious. You need to listen up. So let's listen up to what Jesus is going to tell us next. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Now, fulfilled prophecies are indeed one of the reasons that you can trust the Bible. But if you ask theologians to, to really boil it down, what's the one reason, what, what really does it come down to in terms of the validity of Scripture? There's one thing, and that is Christology. And that's a fancy word for the study of Jesus. In other words, was Jesus who he said he was, or was he not? If he wasn't, then what he said about Scripture, and really anything, he's just another historical voice speaking to us. But if he was who he said he was, and the resurrection of Christ proves that he was who he said he was, then we really need to pay attention. And what did Jesus say about Scripture? He said it can't be broken. In other words, you're not to go against it, not to disobey it. He said it's divinely authoritative, comes from above, a transcendent source of objective morality in terms of how we should live. He said it's imperishable, which is what Jesus is saying actually here in verse 18. It's not going to pass away. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers that have been beaten on it. The anvil's still there. It's imperishable. It's historically accurate. How many people have you talked to that said Noah and Jonah, these, these guys were just a fairy tale? No, Jesus says they were historical characters. It's literal truth, he says in John 17, the high priestly prayer. And it has ultimate supremacy. No matter what anyone tells you, if it contradicts with the word of God, it's wrong. The Bible has ultimate authority. That's what he's saying about Scripture, and that's what he's telling the people back then about God's Word. Not the smallest stroke or the smallest letter will be done away with. In the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Testament was written in, some in Aramaic, uh, the smallest letter was a yod, and the tittle was what we would uh, be dotting our eyes with. What was written down so important that not the smallest letter, not the word, not a sentence, the word, and, and even parts of the word, like a dotting of an eye, aren't going to pass away. That's how important God's word is and, and how we should, and why we should uh, obey it and give it attention. So the bottom line is you have a God-breathed Bible in front of you. This is what Paul says to Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God. That literally means God-breathed. Some of your translations will say that, that it's God-breathed. And it's beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and training in righteousness, which is what we're doing this morning why you guys are here. Going on to the next verse, 519. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same should be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want to call your attention to one of the words, the word annuls. Greek term means luo, and it can mean to untie, but the thing is the Greek language is extraordinarily rich, richer than in English, and this word literally means that you have loosed something that needs to be constrained. It needs to be held back. That's what he's trying to tell us here. Don't do that. Now, why would he tell us that? Here's the thing. 
God's moral law was put in place for our own good, to help us to live right. The designer of us, the designer of the universe, knows how we should live, and he's communicated that to us. And the moral law, in a sense, is a set of warning signs that says, do not go past. Do not exceed this boundary. And if you do, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. I want you to consider this, where uh, God's truth, God's moral law is concerned. I think, and, and this word is, in this passage is kind of spelling this out, I think that you really can't break God's moral law. <clears throat> you can't do it. And here's what I mean by that, given what we're reading here and what this word means. Let's say this morning you come to me and you say, Robin, I'm going to break the law of gravity. And so you get out a towel and you tie it around your neck and you've got your cape and you go up on the roof here and you throw yourself off. What happens? What happens is you end up proving the law of gravity and breaking yourself in the process. It's exactly what happens when you exceed God, God's moral law. You only prove God right in what he said, and you bring a whole lot of pain onto you. And Jesus is saying, don't be like those people that do that. Don't do that. You see a lot of verses in Scripture that harmonize with what Jesus is talking about here. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not just hearers who deceive themselves. Okay? You say you're a Christian, you're not acting like it. Maybe you're not. Paul, in Romans, is talking about people who violate God's moral standards. Although they know the ordinance of God, and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. We see a lot of that today, right? Chapter 2, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Same thing that James said. Now, you might sit there and say, whoa, whoa wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you preaching works-based salvation? i got to do something to be saved? Not at all. We are saved by grace through faith alone, period. That's the, that is what the, the New Testament says over and over again. What Paul's talking about here, when he uses the term justified, it can mean two things. It can mean what I told you earlier. We're declared righteous before God while it's still in the sinning state. And it can also mean something that proves a particular thing. So what Paul's saying here, that if you are a doer of the word, you are proving who you belong to. That's what he's getting to here. In Titus, Paul goes even further. He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. And guys, this morning, I just want to say, I hope that I'm not like that. I hope you are not like that, because it is very dangerous to be self-deceived and believing that you're saved, that you're born again, you're a child of God when indeed you're not. There are tons of warnings in Scripture about that. Instead, what I hope for every one of you and myself is what Paul talks about when he's writing to Timothy. He's talking about all the things we're discussing, God's moral standards, God's moral law, the way we should live. He says, prescribe and teach these things. This is what Jesus is kind of referring to in this passage here, right? So let no one look down on your usefulness, but rather, here we go, in speech, what you say, in conduct, how you live, love, how you act, faith, how you trust, and purity, your own personal holiness. Which, by the way, is really going to get challenged here in the next few weeks as Jesus really takes us into what 
uh, the Old Testament has to say about personal holiness and the way we should live. It's a lot deeper than we thought it was, just in terms of acting externally. He's going to speak to that a little bit more in just a second. Let's be like that. Instead of what James talks about, people that just hear the word of God, don't carry it out. They're deceiving themselves. Something to keep in mind, and Paul brings this up, true freedom is really found in obeying God's moral law. We believe, or a lot of people believe, that the way God wants to live, it's restrictive, it's confining, it, it, it disallows me to do the things I want to do. And No, 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 not at all. Uh, Paul says here, you're going to be a slave of one of two things. You're slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death. That stinks. You don't want to be like that. Or obedience that results in righteousness. The internal affections that you have, being born again, your new creation of God, you have different, a different appetite. That's why you're here this morning. You wouldn't be here this morning if you weren't born again. Incredible verse in the Psalms. Is God's moral law confining, constraining? David says the exact opposite. He says, to all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. When you live the way God intends, it's liberating. That's what he's getting across there. It's the exact opposite of what the world wants you to believe. And Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven three times in this passage. Matthew uses the term some 30-some-odd times. He's the only gospel biographer who uses it. The rest of the writers use the term kingdom of God. They mean the same thing, but I wanted you to understand exactly what this means because there's really two dimensions to uh, the, the kingdom of God. One is what you would expect, the outer manifestation of the kingdom, God's rule among his creation, which will be eternal one day and manifested to everyone. That's one manifestation. But there's a second. There's an internal dimension to it. When you are born again, you are gifted with the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within you. And in a very real sense, you have a piece of the kingdom living within you. That's why oftentimes in, in the New Testament, you'll hear Jesus say, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in your midst, meaning I'm in your midst. Those who believe in me are in your midst. So there's two dimensions to the kingdom of God. I wanted to get that across to you. Last verse. We're almost done. 520. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This must have blown people out of the water and obviously ticked off the scribes and Pharisees. Now, who were these guys? Scribes were lawyers of the day, the legal experts in terms of God's law, right? And the Pharisees were a conservative, if you can believe it, uh, religious sect of, the, the, of Judaism, Judaic religion. That's who these guys were. They had a saying back then, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe, one will be a Pharisee. Jesus says, no, unless you go past what these guys are showing you, you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. Again, must have blown these guys' minds because from an external-facing standpoint, scribes and Pharisees, best of the best of the best. But what did the Son of God have to th say about them? Not too good. Matthew 23 is a scathing rebuke of these guys. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you appear beautiful. On the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. 
you too are outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Goes even, gets even worse. Next. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel about on land and sea to make one proselyte, one disciple, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Gets even worse as, as we continue to read on in Matthew 23. You snakes, you offspring of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Huh. When the Son of God asks you that question, that'll take you to your knees. But I'll tell you this, in a very real sense, He's asking all of us that. He's asking you that right now. How are you going to escape the sentence of hell? If you're not going to be, if it, how can you be better than these guys who were at least externally carrying out every part of God's law that was written in the Old Testament? How are we going to escape the sentence of hell? And here we get the good news of the gospel. Romans 8, awesome chapter Watch what Paul says here and how it applies to everything we have been talking about this morning. He starts off, how are you going to escape the sentence of hell? There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My favorite verse in all the Bible, old or new, absolutely. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for me if we're in Christ Jesus. That's how we escape the sentence of hell. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What we've been talking, what Jesus is referring to. That Old Testament law, none of us could obey. All of us were falling short. We only had death to look forward to. But our faith in Christ sets us free from that. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, meaning you couldn't keep it. It was a mirror showing us what we should be, how righteous we should be, unable to keep it. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin forever, but he did. As the son of God, he's representing God. As the son of man, he's representing us. The only possible sacrifice we could have to be able to put an end to the sacrificial system that existed in the Old Testament. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us that's that justification I was talking about, the righteousness that God gives every single one of us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You are no longer trapped in your sinful nature. You no longer have to obey sin. Instead, you are free to obey God and be righteous. That's the good news of the gospel, guys. So if we look back at our two points again, the eternal guide to heaven, what God said about, what God tells us in the Old Testament in terms of his moral law. The path, this is the path toward heaven and the eternal requirement of heaven. Perfect righteousness, which none of us get on our own, but every one of us gets when we put our faith in Christ. Okay, so as we wrap up, three questions for you to take away into your sessions here with the, the rest of your guys you're going to be talking with. Number one, what did you personally take away from the passage? How did you see the gospel in it? Number one. Number two, have you considered the fact? Remember what we talked about in terms of annulling, teaching others to, to not obey God's moral law, keep and do. Have you considered that the way that you live is in a sense teaching people about God's moral law? You call yourself a Christian, but do you act that way at home? 
Do you act that way at work when you're out and about? You don't. You might be actually teaching people to disobey God's moral law. And that's a scary thing because Jesus tells us, don't be like that. You're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Don't do that. If you think you're doing this, how can you improve? Question two. And question three, I did want to give you a theological brain teaser. So we know that Jesus never sinned. Never once. My question to you is, could he have sinned? Did he have the capacity to sin, but he just didn't? Some say yes, some say no. What say you? That's the third question that I have for you. All right, guys. Equal, yeah. So it was awesome again being here with you this morning. We're going to be going into the, the different sessions and discuss these questions and just the passage in general. Let me go ahead and dismiss us um, with a real quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we, I just want to thank you again for these guys getting up at 5 in the morning and coming to study your word. They're really showing their affections for you in, in your word. And I pray that you would bless every single one of these guys here today. And I pray that we would be doers of the word, that we wouldn't just study this passage, walk away and live like we want, live like our sin nature uh, dictates. Instead, that we follow your moral law, that we follow after your perfect example, which is uh, your son, Jesus, who rescues, rescues us from the wrath that is to come. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.